You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 217, Oz Guinness and Understanding Our Moment. Put your thinking cap on, get ready for a fantastic conversation. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I, of course, am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. Always honored that you've downloaded and listened to our conversation. This is going to be a great one, uh, as always. If you haven't had a chance to go out to uh, halfwaytherepodcast.com, get on the mailing list, or uh, support us through Patreon, there's a button right there at halfwaytherepodcast.com. We appreciate everything that uh, that you can, and certainly all of our patrons, we are grateful for you. So you can get all kinds of benefits uh, if you do that. Uh, just go check that out. Today, we have a really great guest. I'm so excited about this. He's a previous guest of Halfway There. He's an English author and social critic, uh, Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome back to Halfway There. Well, thank you, Eric. A pleasure to be back with you again. It's wonderful to to just chat with you again. And uh, it was, uh, so at the risk of embarrassing you, that was probably the highlight of my podcasting uh, (laughs) career was speaking to you last year. And uh, so that was great. So friends, you can go back in the archives, look for Oz Guinness. If you want to hear more of his story. Um, But we're chatting again because um, you have another book or it's really is it your first book the dust of death is your first book was that your first book first book yeah it's you and it's the be- new introduction exactly being reissued which is really cool so i want to talk about that um and i want to talk a little bit more there were some things last year when we spoke about your story that i skipped and that i was like oh wh- how, how did i not ask that question so if you don't mind i'd love to ask a few of those and then we'll get into some more of what the book's about is that cool by all means. Great. Okay. So one of the first things that I, I realized when I was going back to the to our conversation was that you mentioned you were with Francis Schaefer at Labrie. And uh, the, I didn't ask anything about that. So what? how did you get into that? Like, what? tell me that story. Well, I did an undergraduate degree at London University, and I just become a Christian. And we had wonderful teaching, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, people like that every week uh, in the fellowship and so on. But here we were in the beginning of the counterculture in the 1960s, the Beatles, Bergman Mm -hmm. films, Fellini, you know, the free speech movement, you name it. And no Christians that we knew understood anything about the culture. So it was very confusing, almost schizophrenic wonderful, deep, rich blocks of theology, and zero about the world around us. And it was during that time, someone took me to see and to hear Francis Schaeffer, and he connected all the dots and encouraged people to think Christianly about anything and everything. And so it was after I graduated, I went out to Labrie just to try it out. The first three weeks there were the most revolutionary You know, the old 60s phrase, it blew my mind. Yeah. Well, it literally did. And I remember walking out on the paths at night under the starlit sky, looking at the magnificent mountains all around and just thinking, thinking, thinking. And some of the stuff that I thought through then has shaped my whole life ever since. You know, I left Labrie, uh, my wife and I, in 1973, 
and I jotted down the titles of 30 books that I would have liked to write. And one or two of them have dropped off the list, but I, I finished the 30. But that, I only say that to mention Labrie was so fertile, so creative, that it made the huge difference to me. Oh, man. All right. I, I love that. I want to hear a little more about that. I want to ask, though, I think probably we need to define or tell our audience who Francis Schaeffer was, because I don't know if he's as well known now as he probably should be. Well, Francis Schaeffer became a Christian you know, when he went to college at uh, Hampton, Sydney in Virginia. And then he met his wife, Edith, who grew up in China as a, in the mission field. And they were pastors, or he was, who went to Europe as missionaries to children. And it was almost by accident, Providence, that when their own family started to go to university, University of Lausanne, they invited friends back and there were discussions over the dining table and they expanded to days and then weekends and then a week of people just wanting to ask questions and learn. And then it, it just grew like topsy into a community. So when I was there, we had the Swiss government put a limit of 120 on it, but it was a community and probably a third always were not Christians, seekers, all sorts. We had members of the Charlie Manson, wow. Manson gang. We had Bader Meinhof members. Timothy Leary, the LSD guru, came by. We had all sorts of people, wow. and hundreds and hundreds came to Christ and to faith. And Francis Schaeffer had a wonderful custom. When someone came to faith, he'd open the windows of his chalet and play his little music system, which is pretty antiquated, but you could hear the hallelujah chorus <laughs> echoing out over the Rhone Valley. It was just magnificent. Oh, man. So that was his way of sort of replicating the angels singing in heaven, rejoicing in heaven. Of okay. oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Okay. So it sounds like it was a really creative kind of time. So that's not really, um, it seems unusual, right? For Christians to do that, to, to be, have this sort of fertile thing, like creative place today. That seems very unusual. It was even more unusual then because most evangelicals weren't into culture, let alone apologetics. Mm. But of course, in the 60s, you had nonstop wrestling, searching, backpacking, hitchhiking, you name it. So we happened to be close to one of the crossroads in Europe, people going out, say, to India, to the ashrams and so on. So we had many, many people who were searching. You could go down. Those days, it was safe to hitchhike. At a crossroads, one person might be reading Nietzsche. Someone else would be reading Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. Someone else, um, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Hey, man, you got to read this. And the books would pass around and people would roll in. And every meal, sometimes, well, often they lasted three hours. Schaefer would serve soup or his <laughs> wife would. And then he'd say, anyone got a question? And it could come from anywhere. Why is there something rather than nothing? I remember when wow. he was away and I was in my mid-20s, I got thrown in. Why is there something rather than nothing? The Vietnam War, justice. So I remember a woman saying one night, I, I'm not a Christian. I think you should have so many orgasms tonight. What do you think as a Christian? Here I am, <laughs> signal. You know, one night, someone about as far as you look from me now on the screen sat the other end of the table and said, I want to tell you, I have a power stronger than Jesus. 
within two minutes, you're going to put your head down on the table. And I can just feel myself being locked into the, the, the gaze of his eyes. Fortunately, Edith Schaefer heard this in the kitchen and they stopped to pray and the guy's power was broken. But you could go wow. the philosophical, the political, the sexual, the occult, you know, in seconds. It Non-stop apologetics. I mean, in America, apologetics is a book you may want to read or a lecture you may want to go to, but very discreet. Whereas at Labrie, it was non-stop. Two or three in the morning, the discussions went on. People were coming to faith all over the place. Yeah, wow. It sounds like... Such a fertile place. I just love that. So it reminds me, um, one of the things that shaped me was this, uh, I used to work at this security, this little firm. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, and we used to all, all these seminary students, we'd all work together and we'd talk, we'd have all these deep conversations and somebody would throw something out and we would just discuss back and forth. And uh, it's nothing like Facebook today. It was just, it was so respectful and, but different positions. And it was, it was always yeah. helpful. Um, it was always face to face. And yeah. of course, the sad thing was around 71, 2 or 3, the counterculture stopped. And that whole searching, wrestling, probing generation finished. And you went from the 60s generation to the so called me decade, people into themselves and so on. And I don't think we've had tough minded discussions since then, which I regret. Yeah. Okay. So, how did that shape you? You said you left with a whole list of books that you thought you should write. Were you always wanting to be a writer? Oh, no. but of course, coming out of an English background, you don't have any multiple choice tests and things like that. You write everything except mm -hmm. mathematics and certain parts of science. You write, 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 write. So from six onwards, every exam I've taken was writing, but I never thought of being a writer. But in 68, and that's behind the first book I wrote, which has just come out again. I came to the U.S. and was so fascinated by it, which is in the book, that I went back to Labrie and gave a series of 10 lectures, different as why people were going into drugs, why people were going to the East, and so on. And people came up and said, this is fast. Why don't you write it? And I went, oh, no, I never thought of it. <laughs> and eventually, my English school teacher, who is a Christian, from England, came out to Switzerland. He, he heard one of them and said, you've got to write this. And I looked at him and said, what do you mean? And I thought, well, maybe I will. Well, Labrie gave me six weeks off to write it. Wow. And that book, which is 400 pages, was written in six weeks. I just got married and my beloved wife served me food and I wrote furiously on the kitchen table. No computers then. Oh, yeah. By hand? And by hand, yeah. Oh, wow. My handwriting's too bad for that. Well, that's pretty cool. That, that's amazing. Uh, was it, so then what did you do? Did somebody have to type that up for you or did you type it up or how'd that go? Yeah, someone typed it up for me. Yeah. But the more significant thing is the 60s. And I think, and this is behind the reissue of the book, I was surprised when they did it, but I was delighted. Yeah. You can't understand today's crisis without understanding the 60s. And that's why I put a new introduction, new preface to the book. And I think that's worth the price of the whole thing. Absolutely. Well, so what is it that we need to know? Because I think a lot of Christians, here's my my impression. A lot of us are, um, it's just been weird the last few years, right? With, with, you know, Trump, who's this very interesting 
sort of good on some policy things, but a little bombastic and a little bit, you know, yeah, you're not sure you like his behavior, but you know, not sure we can go the other way. And then there's this whole culture war that we've been stewing in for a long time. It's hard to understand that. So help us understand like from what do we need to know from the sixties that would help us inform today? Well, clearly you mentioned Trump. America clearly is divided today as at any moment since just before the Civil War. And of course, the question, Eric, is why? Some blame the president, some blame the social media, some look at the coastals against the heartlanders, the New York, California against the Midwest, some blame the nationalists and populists over against the globalists, George Soros style. But my argument is, and I think more and more people are seeing this now, the deepest division in America is between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, 1776, and those who understand it from the perspective of the French Revolution, 1789, and its heirs. Now, the French Revolution only lasted 10 years, and Napoleon said, it's over. Yeah. But if you look at the streams of revolutionary faith that have flowed out, just take the two main ones. In the 19th and 20th century, it led to what's called revolutionary socialism, communism. Russian Revolution, 1917. The Chinese Revolution, 1949. I was there. Yeah. But what Americans don't realize, it led to the third, or the second of the two I'm mentioning, which is called revolutionary liberationism. What do I mean? Well, in the 1920s, a gentleman called Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian Marxist who was in prison under Mussolini and died in prison. But he wrote the famous prison notebooks. Why did Marx not work out as he predicted? Mm. And he shifted the discussion from economic determinism to cultural, what he called hegemony or dominance. In other words, if you win the gatekeepers of a culture, then you win the culture. Well, his ideas were picked up by the Frankfurt School, and the most famous in the 60s in America was Herbert Marcuse. For example, if anyone reads his essay, Repressive Tolerance, you've got the whole of the cancel culture right there. Wow. But in 1967-68, here's the key thing. Marcuse and the leader of the Red Brigade in Germany called Rudi Dutschka they called for a long march through the institutions. You know Mao's long march in China. In other words, in 68, and I saw it when I was here, 100 American cities were ablaze following the assassination of Martin Luther King and later of Senator Kennedy. But the radicals realized they wouldn't win in the streets. They had to have a long march. In other words, win the colleges and universities, right. win the press and the media, win what they call the culture industry, in other words, Hollywood and entertainment, and then you win the culture and you know what happened. 50 years later, they've done it. Yes, they have. I'm... Like the cancel culture and free speech codes on the campuses or Howard Zinn's you know, history of America and so on, they're all the result of what I call the long march. And so you look today, whether it's uh, Presley and AOC in the Congress, or you look at some of the extremes at the other end, the SJWs like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, 
That is the progressive left. It's sometimes called neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism or even Western Marxism, all based on critical theory and postmodernism. So you've got to understand the 60s to see what's happened to us and what we're taking on today. And there are many, particularly maybe blunt people your age and younger, who simply don't know history. And so without realizing it, many of them have drunk the Kool-Aid. Right. And that's that's sort of the hard part for us to to do. So it's interesting that that the you would call it the long march kind of taking going over into the cultural centers, because it was really for me, I think I shared this last time, but I was, it was a long story. But the, um, for me, it was reading your book, A Free People's Suicide, that convinced me that uh, character is what matters. And that I was a terrible, I was a bad preacher. I'm not a good preacher. I wasn't good. Um, like just even blogger, just trying to say what I think people should think or do. Uh, but I could do this, right? I could have conversations with people and bring out some ideas and um, and get them to tell me stories uh, that would actually maybe change their character as they listened. And that was my goal. So interesting. Um, so do you think, how are Christians, how should we engage them? Because I don't see a great many Christians engaging in those sort of cultural ideas, at least with the same kind of excellence as, as others. Well, you take our Lord's call to us to be in the world, but not of the world. Mm -hmm. We should be looking at the institutions of the world and we should be looking at the ideas of the world if we want to be faithful. So the central issue is faithfulness. Now with some political issues, take freedom. The biblical, the Jewish Christian view is unique. You don't find freedom among the Egyptians or the Babylonians, I mean, in the past, or even the Greeks. And today you don't find it among the atheists. The new atheists have no grounding for freedom. In other words, the biblical view is almost unique, which is wonderful. Now, when you come to justice, that's not so. We both agree on injustice. Take, say, the terrible killing of George Floyd. Yeah. Almost everybody, thank God, agrees that was egregious, vile, unjust, outrageous. But the differences here come how you respond. We both agree it's unjust. But if you look at injustice in the framework of critical theory, it's all a matter of power. And, you know, the pyramid of power and so on. Then you look at the different, there's no answer. You're weaponizing victims in order to overthrow the current power, but you just have endless power mm. conflicts. There's no solution. And they admit that if you read some of their stuff. You look at the biblical answer. The gospel in the book of Acts is described as peacemaking. Why? Views of sin. I'm putting it in just one word each time. Each word could take a whole chapter of the Bible or more books. Right. You know, you see sin, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, you have a far richer view through which enemies can be made friends. So the challenge today is not just to say injustice, but to say whose view of justice are you using to redress the problem? And there's too many pastors, particularly out in the West Coast, who are incredibly naive and they, they, they've drunk the Kool-Aid of Black Lives Matter and so on. 
Yeah. Well, so how do we, so I agree. There's, there's probably some, um, you know, some, some philosophical underpinnings there, but it is true to say that black lives matter, although we're nobody's, I think, I don't think saying that they matter more than others. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing for people. But remember they, you know, like pro-choice, pro-choice is carefully chosen. Yes. Because which modern person above all, which modern American would ever disagree with freedom of choice. In other words, they hope just by the slogan to win the argument. And when you have an egregious violation, which everyone agrees is egregious, then clearly you've won the argument both ways. And the same with Black Lives Matter. But people have got to say, the organization, two of the three founders are self-professed trained Marxists. They know what they're doing. Right. They're opposed to the nuclear family and so on and so on and so on. So we cannot be naive about where they come from. They're operating out of the critical theory ideology, and that is disastrous. You take, say, the sexual revolution. Many Christians don't know. You know, today it might be race. Yesterday, a few years ago, it was Occupy Wall Street. Now it was property. There's an extraordinary book now out called Defense in Defense of Looting. Oh, wow. That looting is simply a coercive way of redistribution and a, a protest against the false schooling of colonialism and so on. In other words, make no mistake, whether we're talking about property in the Occupy Wall Street or we're talking about sex in the LGBT movement, they all come out of the same stable. Christians don't know that the sexual revolution didn't come from Hugh Hefner or Playboy <laughs> or even the pill. It goes back through Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s to the French Revolution and the Palais Royale, where the ideas political came from, were the same place that the sexual ideas came from. The film Dangerous Liaison was one of the things produced at that very place. And if you know Wilhelm Reich, he's quite open about it. They will not succeed, this is the sexual revolutionaries, until they've overcome two enemies. One, parents. That's why you want sex education at three and four, so you uh -huh. sideline parents. And two, importantly for us, the church. In other words, as Solzhenitsyn said many, many times, at the heart of the radical left, and above all Marxism and neo neo-Marxism is a hatred against God. And we've got to take that on. In other words, that has to be battled, not only intellectually taking on ideologies, but with supernatural warfare. There is a profound hatred of God at the heart of Black Lives Matter and many of these movements. Yeah, interesting. I, I think it's, it's hard because sometimes it's disguised as, hey, we're just... Um, caring for, we're trying to elevate black people, right? Don't you believe it? Yeah. In other words, they always start, and we must start. Now, let's remember that, look historically. As historians put it, slavery is the human norm, sadly. Right. Abolition is the novelty. And who is behind abolition? The evangelicals and the Quakers, thank God. You know, so we've got to start there. Or put another way, as, say, the rabbis put it, why is there no protest against brutality and cruelty 
through most of history? And the answer is the human bowing, and I mean worshiping, power, postmodernism. The first voices that were loud against injustice, against the abuse of power, are who? The prophets. And we, followers of Jesus, are the heirs of the Hebrew prophets. So we should have been in the forefront. Evangelicals were against slavery. Thank God my family knew William Wilberforce. Yeah. You know, my grandfather's brothers were in the lead, a brother was in the lead of the movement against the appalling colonialism in the Belgian Congo in the 19th century. He came, for example, to plead with President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and was rebuffed. <laughs> you probably know, William Wilberforce pleaded with Thomas Jefferson and was rebuffed. So we should be proud that evangelicals were the original abolitionists, and we should be champions against injustice. So, yes, of course, wherever there's injustice, we're opposed to it. How? And that's where Black Lives Matter is dangerous and disastrous. And finally, I think, devilish. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is exactly my next question. So how can we, how can evangelicals who are looking at this and maybe learning about the you know, historical and philosophical roots that, that go back there? I, don't th I think you're right. I don't think we know our own roots either. Um, that is a, is a bit of a problem as well. But if we, if we see that, how do we? How can we engage now without making it about? I'm, I'm without making it about a culture war because that really is. I'm really uncomfortable with that term. I feel like that's a little bit uh, militaristic and maybe twists what Jesus is trying to do a little bit. Well, yes, no. Remember, he came to bring a sword too, and not not the sword that you wield in your hand, as Peter discovered. Right. You know, but remember, in the Bible, I was on the on the line this morning, my wife and I, to a pastor talking about unity and reconciliation, which, of course, is incredibly important in its place. But I reminded the pastor, there's a place in the Bible for saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, some things are dead wrong. Mm -hmm. Our genuine lies are rank evil. And we've got to take those on. We've got to distinguish between them. And, of course, when I mentioned, I mentioned supernatural warfare, there are times when we can play, pray flat out against something, but that doesn't mean we hate the people. No, it's always loving, even our enemies. So we've got to consider what a, a biblical way of fighting is. When it comes to argument, it's a matter of persuasion, which we do with respect for the person and always with respect for truth and fairness. You know, when it comes to other things, we've got to consider, but you can think, take, say, the American social media is democracy in a degenerate form. And the restoration of America has to begin, or at least got to include, a restoration of American discourse. American discourse is vile at many levels. Yeah, I often wonder about that, about social media. How do we, how do we, uh, how do we enforce free speech on social media? Like I, and the really hard part is you have all these um, far people on the, on both ends, I think who we don't, you know, really want to encourage Antifa being one, right. Or 
white supremacists on the other end. And like, I don't, I don't want to encourage them, but I also want everyone to have the opportunity to, to speak on social media. And I don't know how that works. How, how could we do that? Well, it's tough. And at the moment it's painful and next to impossible. But first we've got to know why we believe in free speech. And secondly, we've got to model that way of speaking ourselves. You know, the biblical idea, we're all finite, we're all sinful. So we need what you call from the Old Testament, courageability. Iron sharpens iron. You know, all the notion of hearing. One person seems right until he's cross-examined by the other person. So you have in the Bible itself the notion of hearing, which means two sides. You need a prosecution and a defense. And so on. we've got to be able to give explanations for these things, but then we've got to practice it ourselves. And of course, we have to discipline ourselves. You know, the first thing you think of when someone attacks you unfairly, answer back. And if you put them down with a witticism or something, whatever, mm -hmm. who cares if it's a little mean or unfair? And we do it. And the social media is a massive encouragement to that. So we've got to have Christians to you know, fast a little, wait a few seconds before you answer, maybe a few minutes or half an hour or a day, <laughs> and so on. And we've got to be very careful. We're not just responding in ways that are incredibly worldly. Yeah, I hear you saying, leave a little bit of room for the Holy Spirit to, to tell you what to say, right? <laughs> yeah. No, we all did. I mean, I was attacked recently as a Christian nationalist. Made me mad. <laughs> I thought I'm not even American. Yeah. In supporting the best of what I see as American freedom, I'm called a Christian nationalist. At least I wasn't a white nationalist or whatever. My first reaction was mad. I had to, you know, get a grip of myself and not just think of a put down that was clever, but to try and be humble and patient and persuasive. But it's not always easy. It's not. You're so good with words. I bet you could come up with them too. <laughs> dangerously so i bet wow okay so i'm still i'm still trying to figure out so i guess what i want to know is how do we how do we not put our hope in politics or the supreme court or who's president and put our hope in christ but still engage culturally well put it in 20th century terms first and then we go back to the bible which is more important yeah you know, the idea of politicization, politics as the be-all and end-all of everything, came out of the left in the 1920s. Evangelicals were never that way. Until the 60s, and really until the 70s, you could say evangelicals were overly privatized. We had a, a pious faith, warm hearts, rather empty minds. We didn't get engaged in politics. And that was the cause of the very famous comment by Theodore Rozhak in the 60s, the Christian faith is privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. It was overly privatized. Christians amazingly, by and large, slept through the 60s. Yeah. When I came here in six weeks, the only person I met as an evangelical who understood what was going on was Carl Henry, the oh, founder wow. of Christianity today. Most people simply didn't. They were shocked or whatever. They didn't understand anything of what was happening. The most important decade, culturally speaking, of the 20th century. Now, if you see what happened in 70s, that was when, quote, the sleeping giant woke up. Moral majority, 1975, and all that followed. 
many swung from being overly privatized to being overly politicized. That was putting all our eggs in the basket of politics. But you remember the old saying, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. It's downstream from culture. The, the neo-Marxists understand that well. Now, put all that biblically. If you look at covenantal politics in the Old Testament, you have the beginning of the separation of powers. No abuse of power. You had the king, the priest, and the prophet. The prophet was the world's first social critic called to keep the other two in line That's right. with the covenant. But then the king, the king had no legislative power at all. And the king was not given what he uh, saying what he could do. He was told what he could not do. Gained too much power and wealth and women and so on. And you can see the terrible examples of Solomon. You know, as biblical politics, if you start to look at it, is a humble politics, very realistic politics, with a high view of the abuse of power. So evangelicals, by being politicized, were extremely naive and foolish. Now, in a republic, I take the early Christians, you know, under the Caesars dictatorship, they had zero responsibility. But in America, the people are kings. Yeah. I'm subject of Her Majesty. You, as American citizens, are the kings. So, in this country, for evangelicals not to be involved would be wrong. And the 11 million, 13 million, or whatever who don't vote, that's entirely wrong and thoroughly irresponsible. Every evangelical should vote on November the 3rd. But we don't put all our eggs in the basket of politics. Right. And that's, and I would totally agree with that. I'm, I do have friends who are, who would say they don't even want to vote because they separate the kingdom of God from the, the kingdom of the United States. I use that phrase, but I'm not, I'm, I agree with you. I'm like, Hey, we should, we have the opportunity. That's a privilege in history. Most people don't get that opportunity. We should totally do it. But then sometimes we get choices, you know, that are, that are tough. And I, I don't want to, we get, I think people are tired of choosing the lesser of two evils, right? But they're only bad choices because we haven't been engaged. Mm, yeah. You know, as many, many of our universities are now one party faculty rooms. Right. California is a one party state. You've got high tech companies like Google and Facebook that are high tech boardrooms. That's terrible. Right. But one of the reasons is Christians, including evangelicals, weren't engaged. Now, when we don't engage, in other words, when we give it over to other people, eventually the only choice you have is the lesser of two evils. But the lesser of two evils sometimes is incredibly important. You take the one I mentioned at the beginning. Are we choosing between the heirs of the French Revolution? From Paris down, they hate the church and the gospel. You remember the cry, we've got to strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest? Well, all the heirs of the French Revolution, right down to Black Lives Matter, are anti-Christian, anti-biblical, and anti-religious. Make no mistake. So the choice between that and something that stands against that is a very important choice. Of course, when you choose the lesser of two evils, 
all that does is buy you a breathing space. So for example, in the 2016 election, I said at the time, Donald Trump is a wrecking ball. <laughs> yes. It stopped certain movements going their natural course, but you've got to use his time, not use him, his time, to put things right. We haven't done that. That's the tragedy. That... Now the alternative, uh, you know, he talks about making America great again. He never raises the question, what made America great in the first place? That's the question. So in the 1850s, when we were similarly divided, you had Lincoln. And Lincoln addressed the evil, slavery then, in the light of the Declaration and what he called the better angel of the American nature. Who does that now? Nobody. That's what we need doing. And evangelicals, yes, we vote against the lesser evil, but we've got to use the time, if you win it, to see things put right. Wow. Yeah, I love that. And so we really have to be working toward it, whether it's political or not. And so this is where, you know, I guess I'd go back to friends. What are you doing? Like, what what can you do to help influence things for the gospel? And it may not be as overt as inviting a friend to church. I think that's what we always think. But, you know, I started this podcast because I want to tell a story about uh, how God is working in the world and to remind people that he is and that you can see him in everybody's story. And so you told us an amazing story about, you know, your family. I, I go back to this all the time with your ancestor who um, prayed for 10 generations, right, of your of your family. And you're one of them. That just blows me away. But what can you do? Can you make a movie? Can you write some music? Can you go out and have a conversation or write a book? Whatever it is that God's calling you to do. Host a dinner party and have some hard conversations that uh, those are the ones that I come up with. Do you, do you have uh, other other ideas, Oz? No, no, you said it well, Eric. But think, each of us has a calling. I happen to be a writer, so I write a book. You're a radio man, so you produce a great podcast. In other words, each of us has a calling. So we have a family, we have neighbors, we have work colleagues, and we have all the world that our little worlds touch. Not too much. Yours touches much more than mine with your podcast and so on. But everyone touches someone. And then, of course, the thing we can do most is to pray. Mm -hmm. So from our personal lives and the way we live, out to the way we talk to our neighbors, out to the way we work at work, and everywhere our lives touch, we should ask that we are salty and light-bearing and the ripples flow out. And of course, the Lord has many like us. Thank God when. You know, there are 7,000 others, as the Lord reminded Elijah. Now, let me be clear. The scandal of the American church is that we're a huge majority. Yeah. And yet we're uninfluential. That is a scandal. We who are called to be salt and light are clearly neither salty nor light-bearing if we're the majority and we're uninfluential. We're, you take our wonderful friends, the Jews. They are 2% of America. They punch well above their weight intellectually, financially, in the world of entertainment. Think what they do. Incredible. Yeah. Their voluntary giving and philanthropy puts us to shame. Now, in other words, the church needs reforming. We are the problem. And if all, now one of the secrets is calling. If every follower of Jesus 
was faithful in all our little callings. They're all little. Mine's very little. Yours is very little. No one's is very big. But together, we're a mighty salt pot. Yeah, they add up, don't they? That's uh, that's fascinating. Okay, how do we reform the church? That's that's a great way to go for it. But I, I just got to ask that because this has been probably one of the biggest things that I've learned doing this podcast is that there's, I don't think we're making disciples. And so like, how, how do we do that better? Well, let me address the problem you said. <laughs> one of America's problems and the American church's problems is the collapse of transmission. Go back to the Bible. As the rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? Freedom? No. The promised land of milk and honey? No. Three times he talks about children. In other words, how you tell your story is how you pass on your tradition. Now, civic education in America, which is vital to America, was thrown out after the 60s. There isn't any now. You have books like Howard Zinn. And even in the church, what Jim Packer called the crisis of catechism, young Christians and young Americans are not brought up in terms of what is faith, what is freedom. And so the younger generation are wobbly, to put it mildly. Many of them have drunk the Kool-Aid. So we've got to have a reform there. Now, what is it? I, I think one of the great things of the pandemic, this is nothing to do with politics, is how many are now beginning to pray. Mm. And the prayers for revival. And as you know, September the 26th, the big rally here in Washington calling for repentance and revival. And that's wonderful. And I think we've got, you know, books like Jane and Edwin Orr. My great-grandfather, the son of the one you mentioned who prayed, he, at the age of 23, was the lead speaker in the Irish revival in 1859. And we have newspaper accounts of 20 or 30,000 wow. listening to him with no microphone and the spirit would fall and hundreds and thousands would come to faith. We need an, a great awakening again. So I think prayer, hunger, need, but we need to explore the theology of being in the world, not of the world and examine how worldly we've become. Evangelical, you take the current scandal that's been in the press the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Well mentioned and appalling. But evangelicals have become profoundly worldly. And we've got to put all that right by examining ourselves in the light of the word under the Holy Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Um it's interesting. One of the things I learned from a church history class when we studied American church history was America's almost always had a revival every 50 years or so. Uh, which is sort of fascinating, uh, but we're a little bit overdue. <laughs> we're like, well, Billy Graham the is less. <laughs> Eric, the trouble with that is, and you can see something like that with, with Finney. Yeah. People look at how revival happened, prayer, et cetera, et cetera. And then they think we can engineer it. Right, you, right. You know, the, the Baptist notion of holding a revival or someone now planning revival or, or predicting revival. I think all of that's rubbish. Revival is a sovereign awakening by the Lord through the Holy Spirit, totally up to him. So all we can bring is need and hunger expressed in prayer. 
Yes, prayer, repentance. You uh, know, it's the, this is the fourth turning, that sort of stuff. That's secular nonsense. Yeah. Revival is not a matter of historical cycles. It's a sovereign gift of grace. Absolutely. Well, and that, that then brings us back to to what the Lord wants to do, right, in the United States, which uh, we have, we are absolutely dependent on. Um, wow. Okay. So, Oz, we kind of, we covered, we covered the dust of death and it's exciting that it's, it's coming out. What, uh, what are you excited about with, with it? Well, not just with that. I've got another book coming out early next year, a new one called Magna Carta of Humanity. It's my oh. third last book on freedom. Because my conviction, Eric, I'm English. I was born in Asia. I'm not American. But I admire this country because it, it, the original American idea, not slavery, no, that was a sinful thing. The original American idea, the way, for example, covenant became constitution, ordered freedom, is closer to the scriptures, not totally perfect, closer than any other system so far. And it's the best way forward for humanity. So the challenge for the global world is, can we still hold the dream of societies that do human dignity, freedom, justice, stability, peace, community? I think the answer are in the scriptures. And we who follow Jesus, along with our Jewish friends, should have the courage of those convictions and to work for them today, not for America's sake, but for humanity's sake and the Lord's sake. So we're at an incredible moment, as I see it, globally speaking, as well as in the West. And so it's not just a matter of American nationalism or patriotism. You know, these are challenges for humanity. And we've got to become involved. Mm, I love that. Uh, so definitely, I would say reading your books is a great way to encourage and stimulate your mind and move you to action. I think this uh, happened to me. Guys, this podcast is here because I read Oz Guinness. So y'all should definitely read Oz Guinness and uh, get uh, any of these books that we mentioned. I've got links in the um, show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Oz, I, this has been a real delight for me. Is there anything you want to leave us with? I don't think so. Except to say what a pleasure it is to be with you. Well, I always think, you know, finally... I learned this as a boy in China, with death all around. I never saw in my parents anything but a quiet trust in the Lord in times of incredible danger and evil. And that's when I learned, have faith in God. God is greater than all. He's greater than all situations. Have faith in God. Have no fear. So fear is a global emotion. But it's time for Christians to be excited about their faith and to have faith in God, no fear, and to move out and make a difference. I love that. Faith in God transcends even a global pandemic, doesn't it? Even when we can't meet together, <laughs> it is uh, is all about that. Wow, Oz, that is great. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure as always, Eric. Thank you. Thank you.